From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the hour, the news from Haiti. Amy Willens will report. But first, the blue blood families that made fortunes in the opium trade. Amitav Ghosh has that story in a minute. Long before the Sacklers appeared on the scene making billions by selling opiates to Americans, families like the Astors, the Peabodys, and the Cabots cemented their wealth and status through the 19th century global trade in opium. For that story, we turn to Amitav Ghosh. He's the author of many works of fiction and nonfiction, including the best-selling Ibis trilogy, Sea of Poppies, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, River of Smoke and Flood of Fire. He's also well-known for his writing on climate, especially the great derangement, climate change, and the unthinkable. His work has been translated into more than 30 languages. His essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The New Republic, and The New York Times. He holds two Lifetime Achievement Awards and five honorary doctorates. And he has the cover story in the current issue of The Nation magazine, The Blue Blood Families That Made Fortunes in the Opium Trade. It's an excerpt from his new book, Smoke and Ashes, Opium's Hidden Histories. We reached him today in Brooklyn. Amitav Ghosh, welcome to the program. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, we've learned a lot in the last decade about elite American families whose wealth was based on the slave trade. And of course, over the last couple of years, we've learned how the Sackler family made something like $10 billion from Purdue Pharmaceuticals selling OxyContin. But I always thought the opium trade of the 19th century was a, a British thing. The Opium Wars, I learned about them in high school. The British forced the Chinese not to ban opium. Uh, they forced the Chinese government to allow Britain to sell opium to the Chinese people. But in your cover story for the nation this month, you show that it wasn't just the Brits uh, who were getting rich by selling opium to the Chinese. It was also the Americans, some Americans. Uh, this has politely been called the China trade, a great euphemism. In fact, the China trade was a huge part of the early economy of the United States. Everybody learns in high school about the Boston Tea Party that started the American Revolution. But where did that tea come from? And why was it tea that started the American drive toward independence? Tea was an enormously important commodity for the British Empire. Taxes on tea were Britain's second largest source of revenue. Uh, it paid for almost everything, uh, all state expenditure apart from defense. So tea was enormously important for uh, the British, and it was a monopoly. It was a monopoly of the East India Company. Tea was sold also under the aegis of the East India Company in, uh, in America. And it, uh, tea was uh, something that Americans uh, were taking to in the 18th century, sort of in imitation of the British. But uh, it was sold in America uh, with a huge markup. And because it was a monopoly, Americans were not allowed to trade with China directly. So this was a this was a big grievance. You know, it was a part of the whole sort of no taxation without representation uh, conception. You know, why should Americans be shut out of this trade? So uh, in 1783, once uh, America became independent, suddenly it's surrounded by British colonies on all sides, and it has really no one to trade trade with because it's shut out of all these other, out of the trade with all the, all the British colonies. 
So at this point, China becomes a lifeline uh, for, for America because uh, this is a country uh, which is trading freely with many parts of the world. So the first American ship to leave uh, for China actually departs in 1783, and it makes a very handsome profit, 25% over investment. And after that, that starts, you know, a sort of whole wave of American trade with China. So the Americans bought tea from China, but what could they offer in exchange? What did the Chinese want from their trading partners? The problem for the, the Americans, as it had been for the British, was that they had nothing to offer to the Chinese. I mean, the Chinese could make everything that, you know, um, they had to offer. They had to find some other commodity to trade with China. And what the British had done in the 18th century is that they had transformed a very small trade in medicinal opium from India to China. They had taken that and they had transformed that into a huge sort of trade in uh, trade in narcotics. Uh, they were ba basically just uh, sort of pushing this drug towards China. I mean, just like the Sacklers did uh, in America uh, in the 1990s. And the market grew itself. Once the Americans saw that uh, they really needed to get into the opium trade if they were going to have any kind of uh, uh, toehold in the China trade, uh, they were actually very innovative. One other big question. Where did the Americans get the opium they sold in China? First of all, they discovered a new source of opium, which was Turkey, and they established uh, complete uh, control, uh, mon monopoly over the, over the Turkish opium trade. Uh, they basically pioneered that entire new route of, um, of the opium trade from Turkey to China. After a while, uh, they, they also discovered that the Turkish trade couldn't really produce enough opium uh, to, uh, for their needs. So then after the, after the War of 1812, in 1815, they were finally allowed to sort of uh, open their trading outposts in India. And then they started trading in Indian opium as well. So they made uh, enormous fortunes out of, uh, you know, taking uh, opium from uh, Asia to China. Well, I've heard of the Boston Brahmins, but I never heard of the Boston Concern. I learned from your uh, piece in The Nation, this was the single biggest opium trading network in China and was the basis of the wealth that created the Boston Brahmins, America's closest equivalent to an aristocracy. Tell us about the Boston Concern, and, and let's name some of the names of the families that were involved, and let's start with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I never wondered, well, what, where does the Delano come from? I learned from your piece in The Nation where the name Delano comes from. Please, please explain. Delano's are a very old American family. Uh, they didn't arrive uh, exactly on the Mayflower, but they arrived on the next uh, ship. And they were established very early uh, in, uh, uh, in New England. And they were a very distinguished family, mainly of uh, shipbuilders. Amasa Delano uh, was one member of the family. Amasa Delano spent uh, quite a lot of time in China. He was the guy who wrote the journal on which uh, Melville based his story, Benito Sereno. I mean, it's actually based on a real incident, and uh, Amasa Delano was the one who wrote it. So Amasa Delano was one of those early uh, early traders with China who was always trying to find uh, goods to trade with China. So for a while, it was like sea cucumbers and furs and so on. <laughs> uh, so he wasn't directly involved in the opium trade himself. But then uh, later generations of the Delanos uh, really plunged into uh, this business. And one of them, 
was Franklin uh, Delano Roosevelt's grandfather. And he was actually one of the biggest uh, American traders in uh, opium traders in China in the mid uh, in the 1830s. And then he returned there in the 1850s after he'd lost a part of his fortune. And then he made another fortune in opium trading. So essentially, the Roosevelt money came from opium. And they were perfectly well aware of this because they sort of tried to uh, brush it under the rug, as it were. <laughs> you know, nothing that I'm telling you is new. It's it's often mentioned in the New York Times, etc. So it's just something that people prefer to forget. Another family name involved in opium, Brown. Isn't that the name of an Ivy League university in Rhode Island? Yes, yes. It, they have a little plaque up there saying, you know, he made his uh, money in, uh, they mentioned the slave trade, and then they say China trade. And the China trade is, as you said, uh, you know, it's just a euphemism for trading in opium. Uh, yeah, and, uh, it was the money with which they founded Brown University. Actually, Providence was one great center for trade uh, with China, in other words, for trading in opium. All of this is well known. The Brown family's uh, house is filled with chinoiserie of various kinds. All these, um, all these old families, they brought back enormous collections of Chinese porcelain. Another name, Cabot. There's a famous line that in Boston, the Lowells talk only to Cabots and the Cabots talk only to God. There's a Cabot house at Harvard. There's Henry Cabot Lodge. He was a Massachusetts senator. He was the vice presidential running mate of Richard Nixon in 1960 when he ran against Kennedy. Uh, a Cabot married Theodore Roosevelt. What did the Cabots do in China? The Cabots were, again, another uh, sort of maritime family. So they had members of the, uh, of the family uh, basically working as captains, sea captains, the transporting opium to China. All those families were, were very intimately connected. The Sturgises, the Russells, Perkinses. So, I mean, these families basically just married each other. And they became like, as I say in the book, they were like a sort of caste. So calling them uh, Boston Brahmins is uh, completely appropriate, I think. Uh, you know, uh, here in Brooklyn, where I live, on Pierpont Street in Brooklyn Heights, and that was where one of the biggest opium merchants lived. His name was Abil Abbott Lowe. Uh, his grandson became, uh, rather his son uh, became, um, you know, mayor of New York and then president of Columbia University. And he gave Columbia University its most famous iconic building called, uh, it's called the Lowe Library. I'm sure you've seen it. And Lowe Library was named after Abil Abbott Lowe, you know, this big opium trader. And, you know, at Columbia, even they had kind of forgotten this. They invited me to come and talk about that connection. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it's interesting that, as you say, none of this was a secret. Uh, you didn't have to do the primary research in all of this. There's long family biographies of, of all of these families. If you look them up at Wikipedia, there's many entries, but they all use that phrase, the 19th century China trade. The opium angle doesn't really come into the Wikipedia stories, so I want to give you the credit for bringing that part out. The Boston Brahmins and the America they built are thought to be exemplars of Puritan virtue. I guess it's time to change our thinking about that. It's a very curious thing because they were actually very puritanical, you know, and uh, once they started going into other industries and businesses, they were very rigidly ethical in their, in their forms of uh, business and so on. But uh, all, their, all their money 
essentially all their seed capital came from this completely criminal trade. I mean, this trade was absolutely criminalized in China going back to 1729. So they all knew that they were what they were doing was a criminal activity and they always hid it. How were they able to get away with it? The reason that they got away with it is, I think you have to remember that at this, uh, at this moment in time, the early 19th century, uh, this was a time when slavery existed in the South. It was a time when, you know, there were wars of extermination against Native Americans. Many of these men, their families had uh, been involved in uh, wars of extermination in the Northeast. So I guess, uh, you know, at that point, uh, their idea that it, it maybe didn't seem such a big deal to them simply because uh, of a certain kind of racial thinking. This was bringing, uh, you know, incredible harm to Chinese people far away. But, uh, you know, they would uh, they would just excuse themselves by saying, oh, well, they're just uh, Orientals and degenerates and so on. You know, uh, that that long train of uh, racial thought. And the weird thing, actually, is that China had no history of opium at all. This was one of the reasons why China became so vulnerable, in fact, uh, uh, to opium. For them, opium was something completely new. They thought of it as a foreign Western thing. And it, uh, they conceived of it as part of their encounter with the West. And, uh, you know, that was what led to, the, uh, to a century of incredible disruption. The New York Times, a book review piece about your new book, concluded that you tell the story of the opium trade as part of the long history of racial capitalism. Is that the way you think about it? So, yes, I don't have to think about it in any other way. You know, even if you look at the structuring of the trade, uh, uh, in at least the trade in Eastern India under the auspices of the East India Company, it was completely racialized, you know. I mean, uh, the Indians uh, were the peasants and sometimes, uh, you know, the low-level uh, low businessmen involved in it. Uh, but uh, the East India Company's auctions were very much uh, limited uh, to certain groups, uh, most of whom uh, were white or white adjacent, as they were thought of. I think it was very much a, a racialized form of trade. There's no way of getting about it. And certainly, you know, if you consider the Boston Concern, uh, which was their name for their interconnected group of companies, they were all very, very tight knit. Uh, I mean, they would never have let in, uh, you know, a black man or even a Jew, for that matter, you know. The cover story in the February issue of The Nation is an excerpt from your new book called Smoke and Ashes, Opium's Hidden Histories. Tell us a little more about what else is in this book. A lot of it is about uh, a cultural encounter, you know, that actually took place in Guangzhou, and that was incredibly productive for the whole world. So it's not all a story of horror, I mean, you know. But this was an incredibly uh, productive encounter, most of all because it led to an enormous botanical exchange. Guangzhou was famous for its uh, nurseries and its flowers. And uh, in this period, uh, the early 19th century, uh, before 1830, Kew Gardens actually set up a sort of, a sort of trade in plants. Sir Joseph Banks, who was then uh, president, uh, who was the director of uh, Kew Gardens and, and the founding member, so to speak, uh, he was a, he understood very well that China had an enormous wealth of botanical riches. His, uh, his people in Guangzhou sent a lot of flowers and other plants uh, back to England. They're still there at Kew Gardens. In fact, I was there last week, uh, you know, examining their collections and talking to them about it. 
And uh, so as a result, you know, a very large percentage of your, uh, of your flowering plants in the US and in Europe are actually Chinese. I mean, uh, the list would go on forever, but hydrangeas are a very good example. I mean, there's a hydrangea in almost every American garden, as far as I can see. Uh, that's Chinese. Uh, but uh, I think my personal favorites are two. I love the peonies. Well, with peonies, everyone knows that they're, that they're Chinese. But the other uh, flower, which you see everywhere in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, is, uh, the, is wisteria. And wisteria also came through Guangzhou. Uh, yes, it's such an interesting thing. I mean, the great wisteria city is Venice. You know, I mean, May, June in Venice, it's just waterfalls of wisteria everywhere. And that wouldn't have happened without this encounter with, uh, with China. Amitav Ghosh, his report, The Blue Blood Families That Made Fortunes in the Opium Trade, is the cover story in The Nation magazine this month. You can read it online at thenation.com. It's an excerpt from his new book, Smoke and Ashes, Opium's Hidden Histories. Amitav Ghosh, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you very much indeed for having me. it's time for the news from Haiti. It's almost always bad. For the latest, we turn, of course, to Amy Willens. She's written two books about Haiti, most recently the award-winning Farewell Fred Voodoo, and before that, The Rainy Season. She was also the Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and her journalism has appeared in The Atlantic, The LA Times, and The New York Times. And she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She's also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow, and she teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. We always remind people at the outset why we care about Haiti, not just because it's a desperately poor country not far from Florida. We care about Haiti because Haiti had the first slave revolution in the 1790s, the largest slave uprising since Spartacus, inspired by the French Revolution, and it established the world's first black republic. It's been punished for that by France and the United States pretty much ever since. The Washington Post had a headline on Sunday, Guy Philippe, former rebel, calls for revolution to oust Haiti's current leader. Who is Guy Philippe and what is this about? To call Guy Philippe a former rebel, it boggles the mind, but let me get into that. So uh, Guy Philippe is a former uh, high officer of the Haitian National Police. He led a um, coup d'etat against President Aristide. Now, you got to say, which one's the rebel and, you know, which one's the police officer? So Aristide was kicked out. This was Aristide's second term. Aristide Correct. was elected to this second term freely and fairly, although the United States and the UN and the International Friends of Haiti so-called, um, debated and disputed his victory and his legitimacy. And then, oh, I don't know, suddenly Guy Philippe led a, a revolt against Aristide and he was overthrown again. And Guy was then uh, arrested eventually and uh, brought up on charges in Miami, I believe, uh, for uh, money laundering in just a vast scheme uh, worth millions of dollars. He bought a house in Broward County. Uh, parked his family there. A scheme 
collecting bribes to protect Colombian cocaine being shipped through Haiti to Miami. He was sentenced to nine years in federal prison. Yes, and of that, he served seven and was uh, recently released, I don't know, for good behavior. It boggles the mind. Sort of summarily deported into Haiti at, at that very crucial moment, really just months before uh, this big date in Haitian um, in the Haitian political mind, February seventh was upcoming. On that day, um, that's inauguration day in Haiti, and it also um, was the day that the uh, de facto prime minister Ariel Henry said he would step down. He's much maligned and hated both at the same time in Haiti, and many people want him to step down, and he did not live up to that part of the bargain. Now it's so Guy Philippe was deported by the United States into Haiti. The United States fully well knows what's happening in Haiti right now, which is it's being run by a bunch of lawless gangsters of whom arguably Guy Philippe was the prototype. One wonders what he's doing there. Okay, let's take a step back and talk about life for the average Haitian right now. Uh, how bad is it compared to earlier decades of poverty and brutal dictatorship? You know, I never thought I would live to say it, but it, it is far worse right now than it was under Papadoc Duvalier, who was a bloodthirsty, ruthless, uh, brutal dictator. But it's worse now. And I think it's worse because Papadoc kept things under strict control. He really was the executive to whom everybody had to respond. And if you didn't behave, um, you were not going to fare well. Uh, so he had his enemies and he was uh, just a horrendous leader, but he was a leader. Now there's sort of, it's a rudderless, a de facto government with a very weak executive and no government, really. No government to speak of. There's a three-person electoral council that is really not doing anything right now because there are no elections scheduled. And uh, otherwise, there's really no government. I understand there are gangs that are filling the power vacuum. And they're filling the power gap because there's no executive, and yet they're being run by, you know, political factions and uh, drug dealers like the cartel. And that makes life for the average Haitian who would like to go out of her house and walk to the market and buy stuff for her family with money she made at her job, impossible. So businesses are shutting down. The markets are open air markets. You know, it's not like everybody goes to the supermarket, although there are supermarkets in Port-au-Prince. The big open air markets where everyone is used to doing their shopping, even the elites, are shut down repeatedly by these gangs because there's money to be extracted uh, through um, protection rackets in the markets. And then if the market ladies don't obey, they shut them down, they burn them, and you can't go to the market. You can't have a job because you can't get to your office because you might be kidnapped on the bus. There, there was a busload of, I think, 52 people that was kidnapped recently, then released, but hair-raising. And um, it's just not reasonable. You can't take your kids to school because the schools close all the time because of threats in the neighborhoods. And more than 300,000 people, by the way, have been displaced in Haiti because gangs come in and just simply burn down the neighborhood, steal everything there is there, and and roost in the uh, in the public buildings. They take over public buildings and just the government does nothing. 
I understand that the government of Haiti, whatever that is, has requested outside help in dealing with the gangs, and the United States and the UN Security Council have agreed to provide help. What form is this help supposed to take? 1,000 Kenyan police officers, and then another bunch of police officers, another 1,000 or so from uh, small island Caribbean nations. You had an eloquent quote at thenation.com from a Haitian friend of yours about the idea that a thousand policemen from Kenya and maybe a thousand others from elsewhere in the country would be able to defeat the dozens or whatever hundreds of Haitian gangs. What did your friend say about that? Not fucking likely. (laughs) (laughs) And he's right, because listen, there are about 200 gangs, according to international estimates, now operating in Haiti. Now, some of these are little gangs in little places, but some of them are huge armies. The, the biggest one in Port-au-Prince counts around a thousand, maybe more men. And so that's big. And they all have big guns. They don't have little pistols and little old-fashioned World War I rifles the way the Haitian police used to have. They have machine guns. And they are extremely dangerous. And I don't know what the Kenyan police are used to dealing with. I think they deal with a lot, but I don't know if they can deal with this. And the Haitian gangs have a habit when threatened of sort of uh, coming together, let's say, in solidarity with each other to ward off threats. People are saying, like my friend, they're poo-pooing the ability of the Kenyans to control the situation. I agree with that, but I think that it makes the gangs nervous. And I think that's a reason why we're seeing actually a spike in gang activity right now because it's gather you rosebuds while you may and you know lots of kidnappings lots of robberies are occurring right now this has been the most the worst of the years so far 2024 well there's one more thing about the kenyan police the highest court in kenya ruled on january 26th that they can't be sent to haiti but on february 4th the kenyan government said It was appealing that ruling, and it was going to send the police there anyway. The Kenyan government said, we don't care what the Supreme Court says. It's not a popular idea to send Kenyan young men into the whirlwind of Haiti, of course. And that's why the Americans aren't going in either. P.S. Biden doesn't want that on his hands. So when are the Kenyan policemen arriving? No one knows. And maybe it's all right with the Americans, but for the Haitian people... Every day means the loss of life and uh, sexual abuse by the gangs against women and children is a a terrible issue right now. And the UN said it can't even count the number of rapes. There are so many that are happening. This isn't the first time that foreign troops have uh, been sent to Haiti proclaiming their goal to be restoring order. Not the first time. First of all, there was the U.S. Marine occupation in, from 1915 to 1934, um, which was supposed to calm Haiti and run Haiti after a lot of political unrest in Haiti. We can see some of the results today. Um, and then in 2004, after Guy Philippe ousted President Aristide, if you want to put it in simple terms, at the behest of the elite and who knows who else, the UN sent in a peacekeeping force called MINUSTA, and MINUSTA was there uh, from 2004 to 2017 with, without the establishment of a stable government in Haiti. 
Haiti has also gotten a lot of help from from NGOs, from independent non-governmental organizations. How many NGOs have been working in Haiti? There are about 10,000 of them now. So we've had uh, UN peacekeepers, we've had 10,000 NGOs. What effect have foreign military forces and foreign aid workers had on the Haitian government over the last couple of decades? They've sort of vacuumed it out. They've emptied out its legitimacy because they do all the work. They run circles around the Haitian government because they don't trust the Haitian government. And sometimes that's fair. Although usually it is a government that has been sort of nudged into place by the international community that's giving the aid. So the aid has really made the Haitian government a, a useless vestigial organization and easily overthrown, replaced by a de facto prime minister. It doesn't, it's not really part of the game except to sort of insert itself into the machine of corruption in Haiti. The United States often calls for elections in Haiti to replace uh, Ariel Henry. The, just last week, the United States Chargé d'Affaires said, we have redoubled our efforts to encourage the political class, the elites, and of course the civil society groups to work with the transition government to move as quickly as possible to develop a roadmap for organizing elections, close quote. What is the transition government. That quote is just so horrible in every way. It makes me want to die. The transition government is Ariel Henry, who basically was nominated to de facto prime minister by the dead president assassinated. Ariel Henry came to power about three days later, but he was chosen by the international community out of the few candidates who could replace Moise. So he is their baby. He is the baby of this man who is saying we are working so hard to get rid of this baby. <laughs> it's, it's outrageous. And then the way that he's put in that official has said, and of course, civil society. What that, of course, means is we don't want them in there. We don't want civilians in here. We don't want to know what they think. We don't like the grassroots. Of course, civil society should be involved. It makes me just, you know, it is so arrogant outsider control. It's so colonial. Many times before on this broadcast, we've talked about something called the Montana Group, the largest coalition of pro-democracy groups named not after the state of Montana, but after the hotel uh, where they formed the, their, their compact. Uh, is the Montana Group still active? They're still active. They issue a lot of decrees and they make a lot of statements and they have a roadmap to elections, which is more than I can say for the government, the so-called government. You know, they're made up of middle class and uh, elite people, most of them good hearted and right thinking and many of them with fantastic resumes uh, to be able to do sort of government work and get things done. But that they're part of the civil society that this this official is more than reluctant to admit into the uh, the room where elections are discussed. Yeah, well, this official, let's name him Eric Strohmayer is his name. And he recently told the Haitians in French 
there must be a Haitian solution to the crisis, and this can only happen when the Haitians agree to an inclusive accord. That sounds perfectly reasonable. Don't you agree with that? No, not from the paternalistic charge d'affaires in Haiti. I don't agree with that. How can he say in the same breath, there should be a Haitian solution, and here's what the Haitian solution should be, according to me, the American charge d'affaires. Nice that he speaks French, though. You write that foreign uh, advisors, especially the United States, the most dangerous menace in the current chaotic situation is the Haitian population. Please explain. That's how democratic the foreign community is about Haiti. They're just afraid that the people will rise up. They're already talking about Guy Philippe's revolution, and I can't tell whether they think that's good or bad, but they are they're worried about violence. They're not worried about violence against the Haitian people, clearly, because that's what the Haitian people are putting up with every day. They are afraid, I would call it the post-Aristide effect. They are afraid of a democratic solution to the situation in Haiti that might not cater for the needs of the friendship group the United States has cultivated in Haiti for years and years, which consists of the old elite families to a degree and the new elite families who are very powerful now. These are the billionaires in Haiti. Billionaires in Haiti. That should be the title of my next book. (laughs) Now, there's another set of stories that have been coming out of Haiti recently, and they're about the trials of people accused of participating in the assassination of the last president, Moise. Last week, a former U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration informant was sentenced to life in prison, and another man pleaded guilty on Friday, this is in an American court, to participating in the assassination or participating in the plot to bring a team of Colombian mercenaries to kill him in his uh, residence. Four have been sentenced in Miami to life. And then the wildest story is a New York Times report last week uh, that one of the other 70 people the Haitian prosecutor has recommended charges against is the former first lady, Martine Moise, who was seriously injured uh, in the attack. I understand the complaint does not accuse her of planning the killing. What is this about? There have always been a lot of suspicions about her. She almost immediately seemed to be launching a presidential campaign after he died. She was in the room. She's married to the guy. The guy was brutally slaughtered, and she got an elbow crack. I mean, they say a serious injury. She did wear... um, a sling for a couple of weeks, but I don't know how serious it was. Um, So I think that makes them cast suspicion on her. Plus, it just adds fuel to the craziness. And I think that's what the prosecutor in Haiti is doing. But I would look at these trials of possible conspirators in this uh, assassination that are taking place in Miami. When's the last time a dictator in Latin America was assassinated and the trials took place in Miami, if they took place at all? What is this all about? Why are these guys getting life sentences on American land? And this is just reflects on the Haitian government, too. They've had people in custody for ages, but they haven't brought anyone to trial. I believe they haven't charged anyone in Haiti. This is the first charge, I think, and it's 70 people. Come on. While while the Americans are busy stuffing people away into silence for a lifetime. When Salvador Allende died, was assassinated. Nobody brought his killers to justice in Miami. 
I'm just saying. You conclude your new piece at thenation.com. Throughout history, the United States hasn't been great at leaving its quagmires. From Korea and Vietnam to Afghanistan, Haiti is another such quagmire. Yes, and the Americans just don't know what to do. It's so nearby. It's such an embarrassment. Like the Americans in Haiti, the Russians presided over Cuba for the last half a century. And then you look at our baby satellite, Haiti, and how it's doing after so many years. You have to begin to wonder which was the better governance, the American satellite or the Russian satellite. I can't really say that we've done a good job there. And to get us out is impossible. We have some kind of uh, psychiatric relationship to Haiti because of its early history as the first free republic for Black people, for slaves, for former slaves. And uh, our relationship to it is very conflicted and confounded. And it's the one place where, it seems to me, we, we are not willing to shoulder the idea that Black lives matter. Amy Willens, you can read her piece, Why is the U.S. Paying Kenya to Clean Up the Mess We Made in Haiti? at thenation.com. Amy, thank you for sticking with this miserable story. And thanks for talking with us today. You're welcome, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.